What a joy it's already been to worship with you. We gave thanks to the Lord this week as families, but it's always a joy to gather as a church family and give thanks to God for what he's done for us. I invite you this morning to open to the epistle to the Romans, the book of Romans, this magnificent letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to the church in Rome. In the first century, he wanted to write to them, to teach them about the gospel. Yes, they had been saved for some time, but he wanted to open it up and explain how it applies to their salvation and to their daily life. So we return this morning after a couple of weeks to chapter 10 of Romans now, and we begin chapter 10. And we're still in this section here where Paul is addressing the Jews, addressing the church in Rome, yes, but also dealing with this issue of Israel. What about Israel? Did God forget? Did God forget about Israel? Did God somehow make promises to them and not fulfill those promises? Because if God doesn't fulfill his promises, well, Romans 8, which he's talking to Gentiles, well, that would draw God into question there. It would make us wonder, is God going to forget about us? So Paul's been answering this question since Romans 9. And he begins by answering it, first of all, saying that he hasn't chosen, God has not chosen everyone to be saved. So some in Israel are saved and others are not saved. And that's the first answer Paul gave to the question, God's sovereignty. Now, starting in 930 and going into chapter 10, we see the second answer to the question is man's responsibility. God is sovereign. God chooses Whom he will choose, he passes over. Whomever he chooses to pass over. But man is also responsible to believe, to believe in Christ. And so he really gets rolling with this argument in chapter 10. I want to read to you the first four verses this morning. But the title of the sermon is A Zeal for God Without Knowledge. And you're going to see that mentioned here in the text. It's a a zeal for God without knowledge. Chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is continuing now with this topic of the righteousness of God, a theme that he began the letter with in chapter one, that he then showed chapters one through three, why we need the righteousness of God, because man is unrighteous, because no one is righteous. No, not even one. Then he told us about the gospel at the end of chapter three. Chapter four was how we attain this righteousness. How do we receive it? It's through faith. And he talked about Abraham there. And then chapter 5, the results of that righteousness, of being justified. And then he continues on unwrapping the results of that until we got to 9, where, as I said, he picks up on the discussion here of the Jews and their salvation. This righteousness of God, this theme, this theology of the righteousness of God is the main theme of Romans. How does a man... Be right with God. How can you be right with God? How can you stand on judgment day and expect to spend eternity with God forever and ever? And that's what the book of Romans is all about. 
That's what it's all about. In fact, the other day, this was a couple of months ago now, I was preaching on the righteousness of God from Romans. I think it was in chapter 8. And a guy came up to me a few days later on a Wednesday night, and he said, Pastor, I finally understand the righteousness that comes from Christ. I finally understand that I was trying to work my way to heaven, that I was trying to work for my righteousness, but it's through faith in Christ. And I think as time goes on, we'll see that man baptized here as he has been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the context before we jump into this passage. Nine, chapter 9, verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? And he talks about how the Gentiles received righteousness they were not searching for. They were not looking for the righteousness of God, but God granted it to them because he chose them. He sovereignly gave them his righteousness when they believed in Christ. But Israel, verse 31, the Jews were pursuing the law of righteousness. A, a law. They were, they were trying to do the works of the law. They did not attain the law. No one can. No one can measure up to the standard that God has given us, the perfect standard. The only person who ever did that and ever will do that is Christ. And God says in verse 33, He laid Christ, the, the stumbling stone, in Zion, and that was a rock of offense. Christ died on the cross in Jerusalem, in Zion, and the Jews are stumbling over it even to this day. And so he tells us, now in 10, 1 through 4, he shows us three truths here about salvation. When he's describing here Israel's rejection of Christ, he's going to show us three truths that apply to people today that are very religious like the Jews were, that are very zealous, as it appears, very zealous towards the Lord. Three truths about salvation from Israel's rejection of Christ. The first one is found in verse 1. Notice here that prayer can be God's means of bringing salvation. Prayer can be God's means of bringing salvation. Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have rejected, for the most part, they have rejected the gospel. They rejected Christ for salvation. This is the sovereign will of God, Paul told us in Romans 9. That in God's plan, that in the big scheme of things, this is no surprise to God. They, yes, they chose to reject Christ. They are responsible. But first, Paul says that God has not chosen all of them. And yet, look what Paul does here. He prays for them. He does not stop praying for them simply because he knows not all of them will be saved. Look at how he opens this up. Brothers. So he's talking to the Roman Christians here. He's appealing to the brothers and sisters in Christ there. The church in Rome, the, the brethren, the Adelphoi, the close spiritual family. He's saying, fellow Christians in Rome, most of which are Gentiles, I want you to know something. I want you to listen closely, he says. My heart's desire, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Heart's desire. The word desire here has to do with favor or good pleasure. It's, it's a unique word in Scripture. It's only used in the Old Testament Greek translation and the New Testament here. It is a word for favor or good pleasure. It's a word often where God is, is pleased with men because they have faith in Him. They, they have the righteousness of God applied to their account. But here Paul is saying that it would give him great pleasure, great joy 
to see them saved. His desire is to see his fellow kinsmen saved. And it's, it's from his heart that he has this desire. It's a, it's a deep-rooted desire that God would save the Israelite. Commentator Leon Morris says, Paul here is emphasizing his warm affection for his own people. With this affectionate goodwill, he links his prayer to God. He not only has goodwill for them, but he does what he can for them. He prays. He prays for them. Paul has a great concern that his people Israel, all the Jews, would come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Go back to chapter 9 where he began this section. Chapter 9 and verse 2. He says, I have a great sorrow. He started in verse 1 saying, I'm telling the truth. I have a great sorrow in verse 2 and an unceasing grief in my heart. Again, talking about his heart here. He has great sorrow for his fellow kinsmen, for his countrymen. He has a grief that never goes away in his heart. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Yes, Paul has a spiritual family. He has the brethren there in Rome and in all the churches. But he also has a desire, a deep-rooted, heartwarming, affectionate desire for his people, for his family, you might say, his extended family, Israel, to be saved. He wants the church in Rome to know that Israel's rejection of Christ as Savior is not something that Paul enjoys. Yes, Paul wants to glorify God and God's will be done, but he also prays for them. Paul is deeply committed to their salvation. And he says, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He takes his petition, he takes his supplications to the Lord, and he prays that God would save them. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God. You read the Bible, God's talking to you. When you go to him in prayer, you're talking to him. And you're praising him, hopefully, in your prayers. You're, you're confessing your sins to him. You're making requests of him. It's not the only part of prayer, but it is a part of prayer. We see that here with Paul. He's making a request of God. Not just for ourselves, though. We have requests for ourselves, right? But Paul makes a request for others. To be saved. Israel is hardened at that point in Paul's ministry. Today, for the most part, Israel is hardened as well. Israel is in a time of hardening then and now. But as we're going to see in chapter 11, God has not completely rejected them. But what does Paul do? Even though he knows Israel's hardened, he prays for their salvation. He prays for their salvation. If Paul thought Israel was completely rejected, he would not be praying for them. But he does not simply dismiss his countrymen and say, Oh, well, God hasn't chosen everybody. Election's true. I'm not even going to pray. No, he teaches the truth of election. And then what does he do? He prays for them. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Those two railroad tracks continue to run parallel, as Spurgeon said. We don't see where they meet. We can't make sense of it all. But we know the Bible says God is sovereign in election, in salvation. And man is responsible for believing or rejecting the gospel. Now, Paul does not dismiss his fellow countrymen. He prays for them. He does not know who the elect are. Some will be saved. He's already told us some will be saved. A remnant will be saved. And so he prays. And he prays for all of his countrymen. I'm sure he had people that he knew and he thought of as he prayed. But he's also praying for all the Jews. Now, these are his blood relatives, 
but they're also his fiercest enemies. His fiercest enemies. Every time he went into a new city, where did he go? The synagogue. Because he said he took the gospel to the Jew first and then the Greek. So even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he went to his people first. He went to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel. And do you know what they did? Beat him, stoned him, mocked him, tried to get the Roman authorities after him. They eventually did get him arrested in Jerusalem. And yet here's Paul praying for them. Remember what Jesus said? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what Paul was doing. Paul was praying for those who persecuted him. We should pray for people's salvation. God uses means to save people. What that means is that God uses us to take the gospel out. God uses our prayers to bring their salvation about. Yes, they have to believe in Christ. But he uses his people to pray for them, to request of God to save them, and to take the gospel to those people. Prayer should not be just for help when it comes to physical matters. We need to do like Paul here and pray for their salvation. It's fine to pray for physical needs. It's fine. We do that at church. We have a prayer request sheet that goes out. And the first part is general needs. And then the lower part, the second half, is for salvation. There's a section that we've set aside just to pray for people's salvation. Prayer should not just be an organ recital. You know, Aunt Susie's liver, Uncle Tom's stomach, Aunt Betty's heart, organs reciting. Okay, it's a pastor's joke. It should not just be an organ recital. It's fine to pray for physical needs, but we need to pray for spiritual needs. Don't let us, as a church, just pray for the physical needs of people and forget that there are people who need to be saved. There are people who come here every day and children who are here every time. They need to be saved. This is our family. Let's pray for our family that needs to be saved, as Paul did here. So that's the first truth he teaches us. Even though God is sovereign, Paul doesn't know who God is going to save, and he prays for all of them. Secondly, the second truth here, and this is really the high point of this passage in the sense where he gets to the meat of the theology, the belief system that they have. Number two, an ignorant enthusiasm for God is hopeless. An ignorant enthusiasm for God is hopeless. In verses 2 and 3. Here's where they went wrong. To be enthusiastic or passionate for God, but with the wrong theology of salvation, only leads to hell. All the passion that they had didn't get them any more saved than if they didn't have that passion. Verse 2, he begins, I testify about them. He's a witness. He testifies about them because he's been one. He's been a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he says, here's what I know about them. Here's what I've witnessed. Here's what he knows because he was one, that they have a zeal for God. He was an unbelieving Jew. He understands they had a zeal for God, a zeal, an intensive, positive interest in something. Not a negative interest, but they really, truly have an interest in God. They're dedicated. They're fully committed. They were completely devoted to God in their minds. They have a zeal. They have a passion. Now, zeal can be good. You want to have a zeal for Christ. You want to have a zeal for the Christian life, 
Hopefully you have a passion and a zeal for reading the scriptures and coming to church and worshiping and hearing good preaching. But he says this zeal was misplaced because it was not according to knowledge. They have a passion for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's a zeal for God, but it's according to their own way of salvation. A zeal for God and his ways, God's ways can be a good thing. But if it's according only to what the Bible teaches us, these non-believing Jews that Paul's talking about, they were passionate with a zeal, but that, that zeal is not in line with the truth. It was something they made up. It was something that they took from scripture, twisted, and then had a zeal for. But it's not according to truth. They got worked up and passionate and emotional about things that were not according to the truth. Now, Paul, as I said, can testify. He was there, Acts 22. In Acts 22, he's giving his testimony. And he talks about his life before he came to Christ. Before he was saved by Christ. We should say Christ came to him, which is the way it always works, right? Before that, in Acts 22, he's speaking of that time. And he's telling the Jews in Jerusalem, I'm a Jew, he says, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, one of their Pharisees, according to the strictness of the law. He said, I was trained by your best theologian and teacher here in Jerusalem, according to the strictness of the law. And then he says, not only was he learning the strictness and obeying the strictness of the law of our fathers, but he says, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. They were wanting to kill Paul in Jerusalem. They had heard a rumor that he took a Gentile into the temple and they were going to stone him. They wanted to kill him on the spot. They were that zealous. They'll use violence in their mind. They'll use violence to protect the Lord. Now, God doesn't need violence to protect him, but that was their thinking. We will protect the way we do things here in Jerusalem with violence. And they were going to stone Paul. And he says, I was just like you. I was zealous for God, just like you. Also, go to Philippians with me, and we'll see more of this. He describes to the Philippians his previous unsaved life and how zealous he was for the Lord. Philippians 3, 4. Because he wants even Gentiles to know that all of this focus on good works and zealousness doesn't save you unless it's according to truth. Zealousness according to truth is a good thing, but zealousness according to your own works and your bad knowledge and your bad theology will lead you to hell. Philippians 3, 4. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh. I might have confidence even in the flesh, he says. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he says, look, I, I could boast of all my works. And then he starts listing them. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, the strictest group that obeyed the law, or so they thought. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is how zealous Paul was for God. He went after Christians and he persecuted them. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now we know no one can be blameless before the law. But the Pharisees thought that they were close enough to at least make that claim. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, look, I did all the things that we were supposed to do. And he says, it was worth nothing when it came to my salvation. It was nothing. 
It was like dust in the wind. The unbelieving Paul, the Pharisees in general, had such a zeal for the law of God that they were finding Christians and putting them to death and persecuting Christians because the Christians were saying, it's not through works, it's through faith in Christ alone. These Jews, Paul said, they had some knowledge, of course. They had some knowledge of God. They knew that God was righteous, that God is righteous. They knew that God expected obedience, that God expected perfection from his creation. And mankind had fallen into sin. They knew the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Of course, they had the Old Testament. But this was an immature knowledge because it lacked the most important part. The comprehension, the understanding of God's saving grace through Christ. The apostles went out and preached it. They took all those Old Testament verses and they put it together in sermons and they preached the gospel. But these Jews didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it, so they were ignorant of it. They were like the false teachers Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, 7. Always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. They were always learning. They're like people today who want to argue theology and they want to argue all about these great theological themes and texts of the Bible and contradictions they find and go on and on. But when it comes down to it, they don't know the gospel. They don't know the gospel. They will produce hours and hours and years worth of videos on YouTube. But they don't know the gospel. The basics of faith in Christ alone. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul again speaking of his own testimony. It says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He didn't just persecute Christians he really enjoyed it because he thought he was serving the Lord. But he says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. It's not that God excused his sin. It's that Paul says, I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't even understand the truth. That's not an excuse. God still had to show him mercy to save him. But he says, I acted ignorantly because I was an unbeliever. He thought with all his sinful heart that he was serving God. That this is what God wanted because that's what the Jewish leader said to do. And he was serving God in that way. And yet he was ignorant of the truth about the saving righteousness of God. Today people can say, you know, I love the Lord. I believe in God. I go to church. I go to church every Sunday. I've been baptized. I go to church and serve. I take care of the people there. I listen to the sermons. I take good notes. I do good deeds. And yet, they can be ignorant of the righteousness of God. They can be ignorant of the gospel. They cannot know the gospel because they think all those things they're doing is what makes them righteous. Sometimes we get new members in and we're talking to them about their testimony. And they say, well, I've gone to church since I was, you know, in the womb. Then I went to church after I got out of the womb. And then I've been in church. My dad was a deacon and my uncle was a, an elder and my great-great-grandfather was a pastor. And okay, well, tell us, you know, tell us about how the Lord saved you. Well, I've just been in church. And their life is a sinful life. And their life doesn't match what it says here in the Bible about godliness. Not that people can't be saved at a young age and not know all the details about when and where. But it's that there's no change in their life. But they want to tell us all the things they've done with all the churches they've been a part of. This really comes down to legalism. Legalism is this idea that you can be good enough to please God. That you can be good enough to earn the righteousness of God. 
that you can obey and make everybody else obey all the commands of God so that everybody can somehow attain the righteousness of God. It's never worked. It didn't work for Israel. It doesn't work for Gentiles today who say, maybe I'll be good enough to stand before the judgment someday. It never will work. Because that's not the way that God has designed salvation. They had a zeal for God, but it was without knowledge. John Stott, the commentator, and and he was a pastor in England when he was alive. The proper word, he says, for zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, or enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. And fanaticism is horrid and a dangerous state to be in. Paul was so zealous. He, He was a fanatic. He was totally committed, but committed to the wrong thing. Sometimes you hear people say, well, they're very sincere in their faith. They don't believe like we do. They don't believe in Christ. They don't trust in Christ alone. But they're very sincere in their faith and their service. Well, someone can be sincerely wrong, can't they? What does it matter if that they're sincere? If they're sincere towards the wrong object, if their faith and all their desire and all their works are pointed the wrong place. Yes, we do produce works after we're saved. But before that, our works mean nothing. After that, they're just pleasing things to the Lord that he's commanded us to do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The Jews, having knowledge of God, but they have twisted it. They don't understand the true righteousness of God. They don't understand God's ways of salvation. Sometimes passion, zeal, enthusiasm can mask a person's unbelief. Sometimes we are fooled by that. Sometimes we look at people and we say, that person must be a believer because they're very passionate. But then later, we're also surprised when they turn away from the Lord and go passionate 180 degrees the other way. Passion masks their unbelief. Paul now in verse 3 gives two reasons. And we're still looking at the main point number two, an ignorant enthusiasm for God. But what does he mean? But what does he mean that they're ignorant? What does he mean? What is it that they don't know? Well, the first thing he says in verse 3 is for not knowing about the righteousness of God. They lack a correct understanding of righteousness. That's the first thing they don't know. They lack a correct understanding of righteousness. Not knowing here is the Greek word agnoeo. Agnoeo is where we get our English word agnostic. An agnostic says, I don't know if God exists. I'm agnostic. I'm not atheist. I'm agnostic. Well, here the word is used to say they don't know about the righteousness of God. They're uninformed. They're ignorant. They did not know about the righteousness that comes from God. The way Paul words this in the original is very specific. He puts a lot of emphasis on God here. God in Greek has moved up to the front. And it says... The one-of-a-kind righteousness. That's how one person translated it. The one-of-a-kind righteousness that comes from God. It comes from God, and you can only find it from God. There's no other place you can get it. You can't get it from the law. You can't get it from other people. You can't get it from your parents. You get it from God. That's the only place. They did not know about that because they didn't want to hear it. They rejected the apostles' teaching. They stoned Stephen, as we read about in that long reading of Scripture this morning. They put him to death. They did not want to hear it. Stop talking, Stephen. You're going to die for telling us we're hard-hearted and stubborn. They were ignorant. 
They lacked a correct understanding of righteousness. They pushed out of their minds any thought of the imputed righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that Christ has, because he lived a perfect life, which comes to our account when we believe in him. That's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. They didn't want to hear that. They had invested years into their form of righteousness, their way of salvation. They've invested years, their whole life, often their whole family had invested in that way of righteousness, and they did not want to hear any other gospel, any other news that came that contradicted their belief system. But we lack any righteousness in ourselves. We're sinners. Every person, except Jesus Christ, every person who's been born is a sinner. We don't have any righteousness in ourselves. How can you produce something from nothing? You can't. You can't produce something from nothing. You can't earn righteousness. You can't work for it. It must come from God. Now, this was all in the Old Testament. It was all there in the Hebrew Bible. But they did not want to hear it. You saw in Acts 7 how Stephen makes a long sermon about the history of Israel. All quoting and rehashing the Old Testament history of Israel. It's all right there in the Bible. And yet they did not want to hear it. They were ignorant of it. They were not justified. They were not saved because they did not want to really know about this truth. So that's the first thing that they did not know about. A lack of correct understanding of righteousness. Here's the second thing they did on ignorant enthusiasm for God. Is the replacement of true righteousness with works righteousness. They didn't understand and know about true righteousness. And then they replaced it with their works righteousness. They said, I don't want to hear what you have to say about the gospel and about Jesus and about this faith stuff. Faith alone and Christ alone. We have our own system. We have our own way. Go away from here. I don't want to hear about your gospel. You see how he says in verse 3, and seeking to establish their own. They did not know about the righteousness of God. They sought to establish their own righteousness. This tells us, as Paul does later in chapter 10, that this ignorance is willful. It's a willful, culpable ignorance. In other words, it's a choice. It's not like they didn't have access to it. It's not like nobody came and told them that. They chose not to believe it when they heard it, to remain ignorant of the truth. They rejected the gospel because they wanted to build their own righteousness. They wanted to try to stand and establish a standing place before God on their own. That's a very dangerous place to be in, isn't it? Because we have no righteousness to stand on. Our best works are like filthy rags. And yet here they were seeking. They were seeking. They were going through the law and seeking ways that they could try to please God to earn righteousness so that on judgment day they could be established, so they could stand before God. Their confidence was in their own standing, not in Christ's standing. This was a faith plus works belief system. Yes, they had faith, they would say, but they add the works to it to earn their righteousness towards God. And here's what Paul says. Here's the summary. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There was a righteousness they were trying for, but it wasn't God's way. And when it came, when the truth came out, they did not submit themselves. They did not subject themselves 
to the true way of righteousness. These Jews were, were trying to earn their salvation. That's the problem with works righteousness. They were trying to work for their own salvation. They put time and energy and resources and invested in it. And when the truth came along, they did not want to hear it. And so they missed the real hope of salvation. The real hope of salvation is it's not based on us. It's based on what Christ did for us. Through faith in him, we can have our sins removed and then his righteousness applied to our account and spend eternity with God. They said, no, we want to work for it ourselves, which is impossible. It's hopeless. You can't do it. There's no hope in that. It's a hamster on a wheel, constantly trying to be good enough and you can never be good enough. How many churches today appear to have this great zeal for God, but they're falling into this trap of ignorant enthusiasm for God? How many churches out there are trying to work up emotion and passion, but there's no gospel? We've got to have the gospel in churches. What is a church if it doesn't have the gospel? We've got to have the gospel proclaimed and preached. We need people not to think that they're the 99 that Christ doesn't need to do anything for, but that they're the one lost sheep. And they're the one lost sheep that Christ needs to come and get and take back to his fold. We either were the one lost sheep or you are sitting here today and you're the lost sheep. That's where we need to be in our thinking about the gospel. All right, number three, the third truth is true righteousness is found only in Christ. That's number four. We look to, first of all, that prayer can be God's means of bringing salvation. Secondly, an ignorant enthusiasm for God is hopeless. And now the last one here, true righteousness is found only in Christ. And here's how, he, here's how he sums this little section up here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How many times is righteousness mentioned in this passage? In the previous paragraph at the end of chapter 9 as well. You can see why this is the main theme of the book. People are searching for the righteousness of God. They're searching for salvation. They end up building their own way of salvation. But God's way is right here. Christ. Christ is the end of the law. The law here is the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. This was the way that the Jews thought righteousness could be attained by obeying the law. Now, no one can obey the law perfectly. That's one big hindrance. The second hindrance is that the law was not designed to attain righteousness for salvation. That wasn't the design for the law. We saw that in Romans 3.19. I've shown it to you as we've gone through Romans, but we always need to be reminded of it. Not only can we not obey the law perfectly, no one can. Only Christ is the only one who ever did that. But Romans 3.19, Paul tells us about what the law is for. Yes, we know the law was for Israel when they were redeemed. They were to live a holy life before the Lord. That's sanctification, not justification. But the law has an ongoing effect after that as well. In Romans 3.19, he says, we know... Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law. So that every mouth may be shut. And all the world may become accountable to God. What does the law do? When you hear the law, or when you know the law of right and wrong in your heart, and you sin against it, you know, your conscience knows you have sinned. You know you've done something wrong, and God holds you accountable for that sin. And the law goes out so that every mouth has no excuse before God. It will be shut. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, very clear here, by the works of the law, no flesh 
will be justified in his sight. No one. No means no one here. No flesh, no human being will be justified in his sight by working the law, by doing good works. He goes on. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's why that can't happen. The law makes your sin reflect back at you. You look in the mirror of the law and it shows you how wicked you truly are. It shows you how sinful you are. The Jews said, we don't want to see that. We want to take the law and try to work our own way to God. We want to create our own religion and get to God. But the law was designed to show us our sin. Another purpose, and it's connected to that, is in Galatians 3.19. Let's look at one more here on the law. Galatians 3.19. You probably know these by heart by the time we get done with Romans. Galatians 3.19 to verse 24. Paul opens up, the same Apostle Paul here, more about the law. Why the law then? It was added because of trespasses, because of sin. Having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator, that's Moses, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Is the law fighting against the gospel? Is it really God putting two ways of salvation that compete with one another? No way. No, it's man who's taken the law and twisted it into some sort of religion. Back to Galatians 3.21. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. If it was possible, then somebody could try to work that system. But the scripture has shut up. There it is again. Shut all the mouths of everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law goes out and it shuts everyone's mouth. They have no excuse. And there's only one path that's clear ahead. And that's Jesus Christ. That's what it says. And Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law. We were in jail. We were shut up in a box. And then he says... Verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We were contained in a box, no windows, no way out of this box. It was the law. It was on us. We were bound by it. We saw our sin and there's only one hope, Jesus Christ. That's the only way out of the cage. And Christ came, Paul says. So why are you Galatians trying to go back to the law? So this is what Paul means in Romans. He says Christ is the end of the law. The end of the law. Scholars say this is the most debated verse in all of Romans as to what this means. The easiest and best explanation here, the end, telos in Greek, means the goal or the end of something or the fulfillment. All kind of the same idea. That this idea of trying to work for the law, it was wrong to begin with that they were doing this, but it's all over now. Go to Christ. He's the end of the law. He's the one that the law pointed to. The law shows us our sin. The law points us to Christ. It points us to Christ so that when we leave that cage, we come to him and that's the end of it. If we want righteousness, there's the goal. Christ. There's no other way. They were running down the wrong track. They were on the wrong race. They were headed towards the wrong goal. They were not focused on Christ. They were not focused on faith in him. So Paul's purpose here is to show that don't focus on the law. If you really care about God, 
If you really love his word, if you really love the law, then you'll see what the law points to. The law points to Christ. And you go to him and you stop working for it. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The Bible's still there. The law and the prophets, it's right here so we can look at, we can go back, we can study who God is, we can learn about who God is, his holiness, what he requires of mankind. But Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. Not to scrap your Bibles, but to fulfill all the promises in the law that pointed to me. Now, Paul's not saying here in Romans 10, 4, that there's no law for the Christian. There is a law. Christ gave us commands. There is a law. Look at Romans 8, a little bit previous to where we're at here in Romans 8, 2. There is a law of Christ. There are commands that we are to obey. But, he says, we are not now bound by the law. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the Spirit. That's a different law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, the Mosaic law, could not do, it was never designed to do that. Weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law could not do it. It never could do it. But Christ can do it. He has done it. The spirit in us has set us free. We're not bound by that law. We're free now to serve God according to his commandments. We're not bound. The law is not sitting on us, pressing down on us, showing us how sinful we are. Now we're free to obey the commands that Christ has given us and live holy lives before him. The Christian has commands to follow. And the law is still great to show people their sin. Look at 1 Timothy 1.8. Paul says, the law, the Mosaic law, is especially for Jews, but anybody, to show a person how sinful they are. People twist the law even today. There's all these forms of legalism. But 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good. It was given by God. If one uses it lawfully. So how should a Christian use the Mosaic law lawfully? Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else. All the sin out there. Hold the law up. Hold the Bible up. Show them that it's sin. Proclaim to them that it's sin. He says this is all according to, to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. All of this is in accord with the gospel, that the law points us to Christ. Show people their sin. Tell them that they're sinful in the eyes of God, according to scripture, the law. And that will drive them to Christ, if it's the Lord's will that they would be saved. Now, the last part of Romans 10, 4, I just want to bring this out to you. It is, Christ is the end of the law for salvation to everyone who believes. He's saying here, only to those who believe them. It's everyone, anyone who believes, but belief is the qualifier. It's not righteousness for the unbeliever. Christ is not righteousness for the unbeliever. The only person who gets this is the person who believes. They have the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ applied to their account. If you're an unbeliever, well, you need to trust in Christ and have that righteousness. Then it applies to you. 
but it's to everyone who believes. The unbeliever is still bound in sin. They're still trying to earn their own righteousness. Even if you don't think you are, the Bible says you are. You're not righteous, but you're trying to earn some kind of self-righteousness. God's way of salvation is different. It's faith alone and Christ alone. This is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the gospel. He just is going to preach the gospel to us in Romans 10 over and over and over. It's the gospel. How do we receive the righteousness of God? Through Christ. Well, how do we do that? By having faith in him, by trusting him, by putting our whole life in his hands. Not by saying Christ is the cherry on top of our life, but Christ is the foundation of our life. And we'll now build upon that foundation as God grants us the ability to do so. As we look at this text, I'm reminded of the great hymn writer, John Newton. As he was dying, a friend came to visit him. And John Newton, pastor and hymn writer, he wrote Amazing Grace. And I asked the Lord that I might grow. Songs we sing here. He was dying and friends were coming to visit. And they asked him what he thought in his last moments. And he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's the attitude and the belief that we need to have. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 10. Lord, we do thank you for the gospel. Without it, we would not be saved. Without it, we would be lost forever and ever. We cannot attain the righteousness of God on our own. We cannot work for it. We don't contribute to it. Not one cent. Not one percent. Not point zero zero one percent. None of it is ours, Lord. It's all given to us by you based on the life and work of Christ. We pray for those in the room today who have maybe heard this message for the first time. They've understood it. They've understood enough of it to realize where they're at. Will you open their hearts to believe? Will you bring them to saving faith? We pray for the believers here today that this would edify them, that we could go on giving thanks to you even more today, and we could truly love the Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.